You're listening to Film School, broadcasting every Tuesday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time at KUCI 88.9 FM, Irvine, California, and on the web at KUCI.org slash filmschool. I'm Nathan Callahan. And I'm Mike Kaspar. In her new documentary, Garbage Dreams, our guest today, Maya Skander, follows three teenage boys born into the trash trade and growing up in the world's largest garbage village on the outskirts of Cairo, Egypt. Garbage Dreams will screen at DocuWeeks in Los Angeles from August 14th through 20th. Maya Skander, welcome to film school. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me today. Well, thanks for coming on. How are you doing? I'm doing good. How are you doing? Real good. We've had... So far, so good here today. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, that's, you're, you're originally from Cairo, is that right? Well, I'm half Egyptian. My dad's side of the family is from yeah. Cairo, and I used to spend all my childhood summers back there. Uh, do you remember the garbage people from your childhood? I do. You know, when I was about 12 years old, a family friend of mine had taken me to visit the garbage village, um, which is about half an hour from where I live. And um, we were just attending a wedding there. And I, I just remember the first time I went there, I was just so blown away with how exotic everything looked. I mean, there was garbage everywhere. Um, you know, children were playing in the garbage. The garbage was about three stories high. Yeah. There was goats feeding, uh, you know, on the remnants. It was just uh, very chaotic, too, a lot of trucks. Yeah. But then um, but the people there were so warm and so welcoming. You know, you just kind of you're taken aback by that you know the whole experience was extraordinary and so in 2005 when I was in um, going back to Egypt I decided I was going to do some volunteer work and I went to volunteer in that neighborhood and that's how I got to know the characters in the film and that's how I started making the documentary so so it was when you were there as a child, did you ever have the feeling you wanted to come back and document it, or was there some sort of magic there early on? You know, nobody's asked me that before, but I remember one time stepping onto the ground, and, and back then it was actually a lot dirtier than it is now. They they managed to organize it and clean it up a little bit more, but I remember back then I, you couldn't find a footing on the ground that wasn't covered in garbage, and so I was always looking at the ground, and I remember stepping on the ground and thinking I was going to come back and make a movie about this place. And I didn't even know I was going to be in the, the film business back then. Huh. Yeah. So that was that <laughs> thought actually yeah. is what kept me going throughout. Because it's grueling to make a documentary, especially your first one, you know, because so many people don't, you know, see your vision or don't trust your vision, uh, you know, when it's still starting out. So I remember that premonition was what kept me going. I felt like I had to make this, that, you know, I had to, f- to f- fulfill what what I had seen in a way. Yeah. I know it sounds hokey, but that's the truth. No, no. Did, did you say that so many people, uh, when, when people don't see your vision, uh, did you mm-hmm. run into a lot of obstacles selling uh, a, a documentary about essentially, uh, well, recycling and garbage? I don't think the topic of the documentary is what was hard selling it at first. I think a lot of people were interested in the idea, but, you know, it was I had worked in the film business as a cinematographer and had done pretty well. But, um, you know, as a first-time director and producer, it was hard to get people to, you know, 
invest in you right away. I think every every documentary is hard to you know raise money, yeah. but it's especially hard to do your first documentary. And I, I was fortunate because Sundance had come on board, um, you know, about a year a year and a half into the filmmaking process, and that the Sundance Documentary Fund um, gave me a grant uh, for the film, and it and it helped others. You know, Sundance is such a big name, so um, it helped other investors and um, fund, you know, funders, uh, you know, kind of followed followed after that, which is common, I think. Now you talked to, talked about being a cinematographer. You worked for A uh, and E and and PBS, uh, and you also had a, a chance to work with uh, Albert Mazel's too on with him. Uh, how did that influence you and? and uh, how did you find working with Albert Mazel? I, I love working with Albert. Albert's a very sweet man. Um, and, you know, I think one of the things that he, he told me uh, was that, that always struck me. You know, I kind of felt like I was going to go in and learn something technical about or some, you know, philosophy about being a fly on the wall and verite. And I just remember him saying, you know, the most important thing is your presence. You have to focus on having a good presence. And it's not, you know, people think it's like you're a fly on the wall, but the truth is, you know, you have to acknowledge that you're present in the room or in the situation, and you have to be aware of what that brings to the table. Yeah. And I thought that was really good advice, and, and people don't um, usually articulate it so well. When you say presence uh, when you're making a documentary and, and, you're, and you have a camera in your hand, to just... Uh, does he mean where you're standing or, or, or your body language or, or, you know, or a smile on your face or, or looking in their eyes occasionally off camera? I think it's more about your energy, you know, uh, if you come in with like a good energy and you have to, you know, you have to feel the energy in a room, you know, obviously if, you know, it's a sad moment, you need to kind of you reflect that energy and not, you know, be super outgoing, I suppose. But I, I think it's just, you know, making people feel comfortable around you. Yeah. I mean, when you're carrying a camera, you know, what somebody said, what are the most two most powerful things is a gun and a camera. Yeah. And I think when you, when you have a camera, you have a lot of power, and it's a little disconcerting. And, you, and, and so you have to, you know, be aware of what that means to other people around yeah. you and kind of compensate for that or make them feel more comfortable. We're um, speaking. Go ahead. It's just intrusive a little bit to have a yeah. to be in a room with a camera, so you have to you can't just assume that that's okay. You We're, know. Yes, we're speaking with Maya Skander. The documentary is Garbage Dreams, and I, I just want to talk about the 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 cast, the people who you filmed there. And did did uh, any of them feel intimidated by the camera? You know, it it was hard for people at first to get used to the camera. I think what what. One thing that made me want to make the documentary is that I felt that um, I was going to go in and document, you know, their hard life, their their difficulties. You know, they live in a garbage village. I thought that was kind of what where I was going to go with it, you know, the obvious route. And then when I brought out the camera, I saw what the kids were really interested in was showing off their, their muscles and their hair. And yeah. they just had such typical teenage concerns, and that's what... I was really drawn to in the end and wanted to capture in the documentary, yeah. and which I feel like I did very successfully. Yeah. Um, but, uh, oh, how did they react? You know, so then at first they were very aware of the camera, and they also, I think, in the Middle East, you know, people see um, 
media propaganda. It's very, there's, it's not, they don't have this idea of, you know, this is somebody's opinion. So they feel like if you're going to make something, it's going to be a propaganda piece. So it was hard to um, kind of get get them to understand that this is this wasn't that, you know. And um, one of the things that really helped help the kids overcome kind of the stigma of the camera was like I actually gave them a camera, a one chip camera, and I taught them how to use it. And um, they ended up shooting some stuff, and and I thought I was going to use one or two shots or maybe nothing at all, but I thought this was going to kind of help break the ice so they can understand the whole filmmaking process. And um, actually, I ended up using about five minutes of their footage, and they did a phenomenal job, and it, and it helped them relax in front of the camera. Let's get to the story. Um, we've, we've, we've touched on it, um, but basically Garbage Dreams is about, in some ways, about the city of Cairo. Eight, 18 million people in the metropolitan area surrounding Cairo, is that... Am I correct? Yeah, That's yeah. Amazing. One of the mega cities in the world. I, I had no idea it was of that, that that magnitude, and we have a, a a community just outside of Cairo. Uh, how close? I mean, it must be right within that metropolitan area. Am I correct? It, it's really it's it's basically yeah it's basically in it. It's about twenty uh, depending on traffic. Without traffic on a Saturday morning, it's about fifteen minutes from the city center, and uh, and on a day with traffic, it's about an hour. <laughs> Okay, and the, the the community is Mokatam. Am I correct in the, my pronunciation? Uh, Mokatam. They don't Mo- pronounce it. Yeah. Mokatam, and and they. This is the community. This is sort of where the recycling school is, and this is where the, these people live. And the and the community itself is called. And help me out, Zabal. Zabalin. Zabalin. Am I? I just want to make sure. Yeah, Zabalin. Yeah. Yeah, and that's what this community of people are called. This is sort of their cultural background, and. Uh, and they've been doing this work, going into Cairo to collect garbage for many, many years. Yeah, a couple of gener, a few generations. A few generations. Yeah. Do we know how this got started? Was this something about the the economic condition of this community that precipitated this? How did this all come to be? Well, they had, you know, there's in the 1950s and the 1940s. There's a huge urban, uh, rural to urban migration, and there was a community of Coptic um, Egyptians, which is, you know, uh, Egypt is 90% Muslim and about 10% Coptic, which is an Orthodox Christianity. It's an old old Christian Christianity. It was actually there before Islam came in. But 10%, um, 10% of the population in Egypt is Coptic, and this, there was a group of Coptic um, landowners that, or sorry, of peasants, that just couldn't find work, so they ended up migrating um, to Cairo and saw, you know, Cairo's trash as an economic opportunity. They came with their their pigs, their goats, their chickens, and they used to co- go and collect garbage to feed to their animals. And then back then, you know, garbage was just paper and, and organic waste, so they took the paper and sold it to public baths at the time and, mm-hmm. um, you know, at, for fuel. And also what's really popular there, is, um, which is equivalent to our hot dog stands, is, uh, you know, a bean stand. They eat beans in the morning, so they used to sell it, the, the paper to bean stands, too, as fuel. And that's how they got started in the garbage, billet, uh, garbage business. And then, you know, trade in Egypt gets handed down from family to family, so it stayed mostly a Coptic community for a long time. Now, 
now, uh, my Iskander, the, the film is uh, Garbage Dreams. The uh, what well, these people became very, very efficient, and I think there's a there's one. I don't like to throw around a lot of stats here, but there is one that in traditional mechanized um, garbage disposal, you the number is around twenty percent of the actual garbage that's taken it gets recycled. The mm-hmm. uh, the people the Sabalans uh, have gotten to to they refined this to an art to what. What percentage do they end up recycling out of the garbage they collect from Cairo? They they recycle 80 percent, and some would even say more. But they, they all agreed that it was at least eighty. So that's the um, that's the statistic we have in the film. But it's probably more like eighty to ninety percent, which is remarkable. Basically, not something that's being achieved, and as it's safe to say, anywhere else in terms of yeah, the I would, percentage. Yeah, I would. I would say they're one of the most efficient, arguably the most efficient recyclers in the world. And, and they're doing more than just picking it up. I mean, they're they're processing the, these the materials too and grinding them down so they can, you know, compact them and sell them out to, to be used again, not just given the plastic bottles to a uh, somebody who who does the hard work. Yeah, they 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 grind, they um, turn everything they collect into raw materials that can be used again. So it's different than some places where they, um, some other third world countries where they just take the materials and then just sell it um, on the market again. If it's a good you know plastic bottle, they you know they would sell it on the market. This community doesn't do that. They they granulate it and um, turn it into raw materials, which is then sold to plastic manufacturers or whoever, right? Yeah, in, in Egypt and abroad, um, uh, China is a big importer of uh, raw materials. Now, was the uh, was your your involvement or your interest in this community predates this really important event that was taking place, this set of events that were taking place in Cairo, which was Cairo's contracting of outside more modernized versions of uh, of, of a uh, garbage pickup. Uh, when did that? When did that come? How did that play into your decision to do this documentary? You have these these contracts being farmed out to a Spanish and, and Italian companies to come in and collect the garbage that the uh, the people of the Zabalins have been uh, Zabalins have been uh, doing before. Where did how did that factor into your decision to do this documentary? Well, there's, it, it's actually on many different levels. Obviously, a documentary needs some sort of tension, some sort of conflict. So that was, you know, a great um, conflict to, I guess, ride the story on. But what really interests me about it is that, um, you know, it was really up to the youth. Like, the, the older generation had kind of, it felt, I, I don't know, I guess something happens when you, when you age. You just... Mm-hmm. You just you're just not as innovative. You just don't have, you know, the ambition to, you know, start all over or think differently. It's it's just harder. You know, we get stuck in our ways. But the youth here um, were so willing, you know, so willing to, you know, think of new ways to be able to survive in the trade of their, fa- you know, in their their mm-hmm. family's trade. So that that I found really fascinating. And and one thing too is that. I feel so recently that Zebulin always saw recycling as an economic thing, you know, and, and Egypt doesn't really um, acknowledge the high recycling rates of the Zebulin or, or the residents, for that matter. It was always an economic thing why the Zebulin recycled. But when when the foreign factories came in, you know, they started to the Zebulin started to see 
fair trade on a more global scale, and they needed to. It opened their their eyes, you know, to that that trash global um, industry, and so they started to look outwards and say, well, how is recycling viewed outside in other countries? And so that's where, you know, when two of the kids end up going abroad, they start to see. They go two of the kids in the film go abroad to to Wales to the UK, and they start to see that. You know, their recycling is value just because it saves the earth. You know, it's a way to, it's something that we need to do. It's a beneficial thing. And I think that's what um, the change in their psychology really, you know, started to shift. And I think that had to do a lot with um, the foreign multinational companies coming in. So um, we're okay. So so you have the, them adapting the the younger people. There's a lot of there's a lot in the film about them organizing and and and, mm-hmm. and really fighting back. Um, mm-hmm. And what's been the reaction of the people that you've done the doc? Have you shown this to the people? Um, to the Zabalines. The Zabalines. Have they seen it? Yeah, they've seen it. They've seen well. The, the kids at the school saw it. It's a huge community, so I can't say all sixty thousand saw it. Yeah. But um, you know, like the community at the school saw it, and they liked it a lot and felt that it reflected well their um, who they were, which which felt good to be able to do that. I think they were a little concerned, you know, that their humanity wouldn't um, shine through, and I think they were really happy that that did come through. And I think it's one of the strong points of the of the film is people always say that they're um, they feel like they really can know these kids on a human level. Yeah, absolutely. I, I uh, it, it's, it, it almost feels that I don't want to say they're actors, but but they seem very natural in front of, and you start to identify with them, and you start imposing your own own worldview on on their worldview within, you know, within the film. Did, uh, can you talk a little bit about about them, especially? Uh, let's see. There's the three main characters would be Osama, and is it Adham? Yeah, at home. And also uh, Nabil. Nabil. Nabil, and then there's Lila, and then there's Lila, mm-hmm. which is the the social pe- the social worker. Um, well, I I can start with Adham. Well, let me start with Nabil. Nabil is a very um, shy, kind of artistic boy. He was the hardest to film. Like, he was very um, kind of very reserved yeah. and very quiet. And he was probably the his family was the most affected by the multinationals and. You see at the end of the story that he couldn't go and collect garbage anymore from the residents, and he ends up um, scavenging for scraps on the street. So his his you know personal story was tough. Yeah. Um, he's a very sweet sweet kid though. Then there was Adham, and I chose Adham. Adham and Osama were the two characters that I chose right away, and um, I was really impressed by Adham's you know cockiness. And he you know there's always foreigners and stuff coming to teach English at the school and. He always gravitates to them. He's very interested in, you know, the world and um, just seeing how he plays a part in it. And he really kind of has a, um, I think, an inflated sense of of his his how he can affect the world. And mm. and it's great because that's a youth, you know, a very youthful approach to, you know, your life. And that obviously that kind of dream gets squished along <laughs> along the way of having so much, you know. Well, he's, he he, so much he, isn't he the one who really wants to make this uh, a big, I mean, in his mind, he's an entrepreneur of the three. I mean, would that be? Yeah, that's uh, correct. Yeah. He he wants to go and, um, you know, develop the trade, the recycling trade. He wants to, you know, basically 
change. You know, he feels he has a lot to offer um, the rest of the world in terms of his expertise in recycling. And then there's Osama, who um, is kind of, you know, the 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 opposite, the antithesis of Adham, and he can't, you know, keep a job. He um, never shows up for school. He's always late. You know, uh, um, he eventually um, ends up getting a job at the end. I don't want to ruin the story, but... Uh, you know, but he just he just can't get it together for the longest time, and thank God he got it together towards the end, <laughs> so that we could show like a, he could actually yeah. have a change in his character arc. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and then there's Lila, who's a social worker in the neighborhood, and she's great because she's a very strong female character. And um, I think there's a misconception that you know that the women in Egypt are very docile, but actually, um, even though there's a, a very male-driven society, women, um, family is the center of the society, and women, you know, um, are the ones that construct family structure, and family revolves around the women, um, you know, and their social network. Well, in the film, um, there's a there's some discussion there's some or not discussion there's some action being taken to protect these people who work with garbage all day long and i'm wondering over you know you're there's they're getting tetanus shots there's some some resistance on the part of the people uh, doing the work for this medical care but it's obviously necessary i was just wondering over the years if uh, they talked about this at all the uh say the quality of garbage that they're dealing with but the toxic level of and the different kind of materials that these people are now dealing with as opposed to maybe 30 or 40 years ago. Has that had an impact on on how the garbage is collected, the uh, the uh, the health of the people picking up the garbage? Is there some discussion at all about um, the effects, the, the sort of toxic levels of material that they're dealing with? I think it, and, you know, they probably don't think of it that way. Um, I think they're aware that the material that they're collecting is more toxic for their lives has improved so much over the last 50 years and before they didn't have health care before they didn't they lived in shanty towns so like they're they're they were they, they used to live with their animals in shanty towns so their life has improved dramatically mm-hmm. so i think that offsets any any um you know the trash has probably become more valuable mm-hmm. so they make more money so that probably offset any you know dealing of hazardous ways um and also the, their whole tetanus campaign, they actually have the least, the lowest um, rate of infant mortality or, 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 you know, mortality of birth at birth um, than a lot of poor neighborhoods, in, than most of the poor neighborhoods in Egypt because they're a community that does have tetanus shots and a lot of the uh, deaths that occurred at birth are, are, due with, um, are due to the fact that women use tetanus infected utensils to give birth so um they actually have their whole health campaign is is really effective uh, did you see any uh, change in uh, egypt's uh, government as far as uh, or cairo's government as far as the zabaline situation is or are they just going to move forward with the the multinational company who's doing the the trash pickup right now and and not incorporate any of the zabaline expertise into it I think the um, I think that the the residents have started to become more and more discontent with the multinational companies. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't want to give away the ending, but uh, the two of them end up two of the multinationals do end up leaving at the end, and one becomes 
bigger and expand, you know, switches hands and expands its um, its its reach. But you know, there were the, the Egyptian authorities never recognized the high recycling rates of the zebelin. Yeah, they're not they're not really valued. And then I guess one thing I want to say: when a lot of people that see this film kind of have a real strong gut reaction to all the garbage and feel like you know this is inhumane that people should live like this. But I don't think it's, um, you know, there's so much you can only deal with in a film, but I, I just think it's, it's, people don't understand that there's so much poverty in Egypt that uh-huh. this job of a garbage collection is, is actually a good job. And it's better to have a job in garbage collection than not have a, a job at all, you know? Yes. So, um, so actually the Zebeline, you know, had done pretty well compared to other poor people in Egypt. It wasn't the worst situation to be in. Well, I, I was struck by the dignity they brought to their work. I, I, that's the one thing I really picked up from from the people that you were uh, filming there. It's just that this was this was a, a a job that was good, that it was helping things, and that and that's what counted. Yeah, they have a lot of pride in their work, which is great. Well, the uh, film is Garbage Dreams. We've been speaking with Maya Skander. Garbage Dreams will screen at DocuWeeks in Los Angeles from August 14th through 20th. Maya Skander, thanks for being on Film School. Thank you so much. And uh, just to let everybody know, I'm going to be at the Q&A for the first three evenings um, on the 14th at 7.45 p.m. is our first show, and I'll be there at the Q&A. And then the next two screenings at 9.45 p.m. on Saturday at eight uh, Saturday and then five forty p.m. on Sunday. To learn more about Film School, listen to more interviews, or subscribe to our podcast, visit our website at kuci.org/slash/filmschool.